Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome everyone to Breaking Big Blue. I'm your host Jordan Ron on ESPN, ESPN.com, Giants reporter. And we're here with the bye week episode. I know it's a little late, but I was a bit under the weather last week. I wasn't feeling great. My throat was bothering me, so I decided I'm going to hold this off. But I now, since we held it off, we got a lot to touch upon. We got the tension between Wink Martindale and Brian Dable. I'll tell you what I believe and what I know on that situation and where I think things stand. And I think you'll find this interesting. I think it's salvageable. I'll tell you about that in a little bit. Uh, also, we're going to talk about Tommy DeVito. There's a decision to be made with Tommy DeVito. Whether he should start or not, Giants play again next Monday night, right? A week from today. This is this episode should be dropping on Monday. So a week from today, the Giants play a uh, Green Bay Packers team that's actually playing pretty well. And let's let's just get this out of the way, okay? Uh, the Giants, we shouldn't bring them up as in the hunt or in the playoff contender. They're not. They're 4-8. Same record as the Jets, by the way. You know, so when we're talking about draft pick now, <laughs> the Jets are one of those teams that come into the equation of picking really high and in that quarterback conversation because I know Aaron Rodgers is going to come be back next year, and he's not going to want them to pick a quarterback. But the future for the Jets at quarterback is quite uncertain. So they're now in that conversation as well. I'll, I'll get into the draft quarterbacks in another episode. I've started to talk to some people I know around the league, scouts, uh, executives, about the quarterbacks coming out in the draft. But we'll get more into detail of that later on. Also going to talk to Gary Myers, former New York Daily News columnist, about his book that's out right now, Once Once a Giant. Uh, it's a really about the travel and travails of the 86 Giants and their post-playing career. So a lot of interesting things there. Uh, and then also later on, I'll get into the Tommy DeVito craze. And some of the ridiculous things that I witnessed at his most recent uh, event or uh, outing or autograph signing, which was at Primo Hoagies in Wayne, New Jersey, which was, I'll get to it later, but it was amazing. Amazing. I, I could not believe what I saw with my own eyes. The Tommy DeVito craze is in full effect. Um, but first, I think where we need to start is. So before the Giants played their last game against the New England Patriots, Jay Glazer, you know, Fox insider, Fox Sports, does the pregame show, extremely plugged in. Like when Jay Glazer says something, write it down. It's solid, right? He is in that level. Like his information is, when he gets it, is golden. So he comes out, says, Brian Dable, and Wink Martindale are in a bad place. Now, that didn't surprise me at all. Kind of had heard some, heard some whispers, knew some things going on, but, and a lot of people say, well, you, you didn't know anything. Why didn't you say anything? Drop some little clues. Like I, I, The thing that I kept hearing here, here's, well, I'll start with this. 
is that there was thought process that Wink was going Wink Martindale was going to be the one that kind of got scapegoated for this season, which to me was always weird because clearly the defense hasn't been great this year. They've been up and down, but they when they win, it's because of the defense. It's because they play well, like in New England, uh, like the two Washington games. Uh, like, you know, they kept them in the Jets game. They should have won the Jets game because of the defense. They kept them in the Buffalo game. They could have won the Buffalo game because of their defense. Like when the Giants have won this year, it's been because of their defense. The offense, 32nd in the league in offense, 32nd in the league in scoring. That's where the eyes should be, right? So it was kind of always weird to me that I kept hearing that. Now, the reason it wasn't a big story is because, and this is what Jay Glazer reported and I did not know, was that it reached the point where he didn't think that they might even last the season, which I think they're going to last the season. I don't think that's in question personally, unless there's uh, some butting of the heads, you know, or, or a specific event, you know, like a, a Mark Colombo type thing uh, between Dable and Wig Martindale. But even then, that they could part ways at the end of the season, or likely were likely were going to split. Now that's where it becomes a story, right? Look, there's plenty of coaches along time, you know, even recently, who don't necessarily like each other. They don't get along that well. But they work together. I mean, you probably work with people. I work with people that I don't particularly like. That's reality. That's that's life. But when Jay Glazer says that, now it becomes a story. So instead of just like a side note, hey, we got to keep an eye on this because let's let's follow the clues, okay? And I, I spoke to somebody who knows Dable and Wake Martindale pretty well, and they've seen them work together. And what they told me was, yeah, the the you know that I don't want to say hate, but distaste for each other kind of in a way is real but and the genesis of it all is they just have a different approach to how they go about their business right if you look at them on the sideline wig martindale super stoic always wants to keep his composure brian dayball just to you know unhinged at times you know flipping his uh flipping the tablet at his quarterback or berating a player or a coach and then you look at the, the the clues, the little cookies that are out there, the crumbs. Remember that Dallas game? Tom Rinaldi. Tom Rinaldi, by the way, and if, if you remember after the game, I was pressing Dayball on this. Tom Rinaldi, who has done hundreds, maybe thousands of games, thought it was unusual the way that they went into halftime talking, Brian Dayball and Wink Martindale, and then came out still having that same conversation. Clearly wasn't, and, you know, just imagine Brian Dayball, we, we see him on the sideline, wasn't just, you know, calm talking, Okay. I think it's fair to say that was probably a pretty animated conversation. Contentious is probably the best word for it. So now you have that. Then you have the Xavier McKinney situation, right? Xavier McKinney uh, basically criticizes Wig Martindale. Brian Dable doesn't have his back publicly. When the Giants win their first game a couple weeks later, guess who's doing breaking down the team in the locker room? Who does, who does Brian Dable choose? Out of an entire locker room, 53 players. Xavier McKinney. I mean, is that not a slap in the face of the defensive coordinator? Seems like it to me. And really, a lot of this stems from, and this is what I've heard, is that, you know, they have these different approaches. Dable's all over the coaches. And which is which unit has been struggling the most this season? It's that offense. That offense has just been struggling, 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 can't score points, puts pressure, endless pressure on the defense, and then somehow winks. Martindale's going to be on, on a hot seat. So after the game, they beat the Patriots. Brian Dayball goes in there. I guess he gives a game ball after, by the way, 
He knows what happened, right? He hears the report. He knows about the report. He was waiting for a question to be asked at that press conference, waiting for a question to be asked. Then he gave that lame joke. You know, uh, we've, the only thing we fight over is Dona. Okay. Two minutes later, he happens to go and give the game ball to guess who? Week Martindale, right? You're not getting along. This is, this is, this is a known fact. You're not getting along great. And you're going to go in there and pretend like everything's hunky-dory after the game and throw the game ball to him. Now, I will say this, and this is why I think it's salvageable. I've talked to some players, key defensive players, and they're, they've been pretty much unaware of the contentious relationship between Wink and Dable. And I think that's a positive sign for this reason. The fact that they were able to keep that away from the players and guys have told me off the record like they really didn't know that this was going on. Makes me feel like it's salvageable, the relationship. That after the season, and this is on John Mara, he sits him down and says, look, we got to make this work, guys. Year three, the Giants cannot go in and have to restart everything on defense, have a new defensive coordinator, new defensive scheme, shake up the personnel, because the personnel that they have on defense is for Wink Martindale's defense. So they need to make this work. So I do think it is salvageable. And I've talked to people within the organization, and they also think it's salvageable. It's rocky right now. That relationship is on the verge of being over, right? We're going to break up, and we're never going to talk again. But I do think, with a little therapy, John Mara, that's you, that they can make it work. So decision coming up for Monday night. Tyrod Taylor is now eligible to return. Do the Giants... Now turn back to Tyrod Taylor. I spoke to him recently. Told me he's been running, throwing, feels pretty good. So probably could come back. But I think it's in the Giants' best interest right now to slow play that. Star Tommy DeVito. They're not in the playoff hunt. They're 4-8. This is a bad team. It's not a good team. Could win a couple more games. They're not in the playoff hunt. They're not good enough to win four of their last five games. Just not. Especially with two of them against the Eagles. That looks like the Eagles are going to have to play. So... You might as well take the opportunity. The best experience for Tommy DeVito is game experience. Get him in there. Give him some more time. He's been pretty good so far. Yes, he takes a lot of sacks. He holds the ball along. Six touchdowns, one interception, and his three starts. Making plays down the field. Tough throws down the field. There's enough for me to say, I want to see more. Plus, the fans want to see more. They love Tommy DeVito craze. Like, it gives them something for this season, right? It's fun. The whole pinched... Fingers celebration, the Italian, uh, you know, as as uh, Tommy DeVito called it. It's fun. Saquon Barkley running around yelling, Jersey! And Tommy Cutlets, by the way, I like the nickname Tommy Cutlets. I don't know what you guys think about it, but Tommy Cutlets works for me. Like the nickname. So it makes sense for me, at least slow play Tyrod Taylor. Give Tommy DeVito another start, probably at least two. See where it goes from there. Like, you know, Tyrod Taylor has been out four straight games. You don't, you could just bring him back, practice him, say, hey, he needs some practice time before he gets back. You don't even need to necessarily activate him. You could just practice him, you know, open his window, say, you know, we want to get him in game shape, get him some more practice reps, and then see where that goes. But to me, got to play Tommy DeVito against the Packers on Monday night. Got to. Absolutely have to. And with that being said, let's go to the next segment. On to the next one. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. 
If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. All right, let's bring on Gary Myers, former New York Daily News columnist, now just basically a best-selling author. Is is, is that isn't that, isn't that correct at this point, Gary? With with yeah, uh, that's that sounds, once that pretty good. Yeah, that's when you say basically just. That's pretty good. Well, so. I don't know. Well, it depends. Like you know, I was. It's a New York Times bestseller, but I thought you said Wall Street Journal, right? So. Well, Wall Street sure. Journal, yeah, Wall Street Journal. I'd love it to be New York Times bestseller. The Wall Street Journal picked it as one of its three sports books that it's recommending for the holidays. It's been an Amazon bestseller, you know, for two months prior to when the book came out in September. So, yeah, the reaction's been great. Once a Giant, it's called. It's a, uh, about the 80, 1986 Giants. Tell us real quick why you decided to write this book. Yeah, I think the subtitle says a lot. It's a story of victory, tragedy, and life after football. So it's not a Jordan. It's not a recounting of the '86 season by any means. Right. Well, I, well, I give details about it in there. I mean, most everybody knows about it, and there's been books written about that. This is more about the challenges uh, uh, that l- life after football presents of playing such a demanding physical sport, and now that these guys are in their 50s and 60s. Uh, a lot of them are facing mental health issues and physical, emotional, and and financial problems. So, I you know I interviewed as many guys as I could find, and um, but instead of making and and pl- believe me, plenty of heartbreaking stories are in the book. But I didn't want to make it three hundred pages of depressing stories, so I balanced that off with, you know, talking about how these eighty six Giants you know developed a real brotherhood. You know, this was the days before free agency, so. The 86 team had been together for three, four years already. At least the foundation of it was. So by 1986, you know, they had, you know, really formed this bond. And they looked out for each other off the field and they had each other's back on the field. And what makes this team really unique, Jordan, is that 37 years later, they're still looking out for each other. Any, Any of these guys have a problem. Word gets to Harry Carson, who considers himself captain for life. They get a text chain going. They go visit the player if he needs assistance getting to a doctor. Uh, uh, one of the stories that's gotten a lot of publicity from the book is how Bill Parcells has loaned out uh, $4 million to about a total of 20 different players. That's $4 million total, not each. But it's still a remarkable amount of money. So that's what I think really makes this team special is that uh how they really still care about each other all these years later so where were you at the time you were a columnist for the daily news were you covering the team on a daily basis what was your role at the time well in 1986 86 86, interestingly enough i was still working in dallas i covered or in dallas 
Thank yeah, you. I covered the Giants before I moved to Dallas in 81, and then I moved back in 89. But by 1986, I wasn't covering the Cowboys anymore. I was the NFL columnist for the Dallas Morning News. And because the NFC East was just dynamic that year, you know, with the the Giants and, and the team we used to call the Redskins, and the Cowboys were still good, and the Eagles had Buddy Ryan. That was his first year. I did a lot of traveling around the NFC East games. So I got reacquainted with all those guys that were still there from 1981, and it was a handful, and got to know the 86 guys. And then when I moved back in 89, and I was around the Giants a lot, um, those relationships continued, and I got to know the new guys who weren't there. Um you know, maybe even in 86 when I was around them a lot and I wasn't around them that much in 87, 88. But by 89, when I was back around them, you know, I established new relationships. And Jordan, when I decided I wanted to write this book, I, I was really inspired and motivated to do it. Uh, I think it was in 2019, I was at the Hall of Fame for Kevin Mawai. And they had a um, an event the day before uh, at the high school. I don't know if you've ever been to Canton for... Yeah, yeah. It, we were there for Strahan. Right, okay. So you know there's that high school. I think it's called McKinley High School. That's right next door to the yes. stadium. McKinley, that is correct, um, I believe. Right. Um, so the day before, every Hall of Famer who returns for the weekend, um, they have them at this uh, event, and they're up on the stage. And when it was over, I was walking toward the stage, and I, I saw Earl Campbell in a wheelchair sitting next to Paul Hornig in a wheelchair, uh, next to Gail Saris, who at that point had a well-documented case of, of dementia. Uh, Tony Dorsett, although physically he was fine, I knew that he had a lot of memory loss issues. And um, one or two other guys that was just in that, like that group that was all within 10 feet of each other. And I was thinking, wow, you know, some of the greatest players in NFL history and in this little group right here, they're all suffering some way one way or another, from their life that can be traced to their playing days. And so I started thinking about, you know, when I when I came up, my, when I wanted to write another book, that I really wanted to write about life after football. And it, it took me a year or so to figure out how I wanted to frame it, you know, whether I wanted to talk to players, you know, who just played in that era of the mid to late 60s, 80s rather, I'm sorry, or to concentrate on one team. And I thought if I just kind of cherry-picked players from around the NFL, that there wouldn't be like a central theme that would draw all these players together. It would just be, say, 12 individual stories that weren't, it wouldn't be cohesive. And that it just hit me that, boy, the 86 Giants, I've never written a book about a New York team. This is my sixth book. And by far the most popular and beloved of the Giants' four Super Bowl winners. And the best team, by far, of their four Super Bowl winners with these characters, you know, Parcells and Belichick and Sims and Taylor, and Banks and, and Carson and Bavaro and McConkie, uh, everybody of which I had a relationship with. So, you know, I pitched it first to my literary agent, and then she shopped it, and, you know, we were able to sell it. And... This is by far, you know, my best book, uh, the book I really take the most pride in. Um, a lot of it has to do with, this is the first book that I've written, Jordan, 
and you'll come to appreciate this when you get into the book writing part of this. It's the first book I've written where I didn't have the daily news job. Right. So I was trying, I was writing these books, writing five columns a week, and then trying to write the book in my spare time or waiting till after the Super Bowl and just cramming it in in a two-month period. This one, I devoted two years of my life to research and writing it. And you do that with anybody. It's going to be better written and better researched than when you're splitting your time, you know, not even splitting, spending most of your time on your full-time job. So um, I'm really happy with the result. I'm thrilled with the reaction I've gotten from readers. Um, and it's just filled with, the book is just filled with amazing stories that, you know, I didn't know. And so I'm confident there's a lot of new information in there for the readers. How surprising was that Super Bowl at the time, especially since you were in Dallas? Like, with was it a surprise? Because at the time, remember the Giants have zero Super Bowls, right? Right. They're right. building up, but at the same time, hadn't actually experienced that kind of success yet. Success yet. So when they get to this, you know, the valley, right? You know, the 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 pinnacle. Yeah. Uh, what was what was that at the time? What was that like? Well, I remember. Yeah, so in 84, the Giants lost to the 49ers in the divisional round, mm -hmm. and the Niners went on to win the Super Bowl. In 85, they lost Bears. to the Bears in the divisional round, and the Bears went on to win the Super Bowl. And the Giants went into that season fully convinced that 86 was their year. And it was basically Super Bowl, or, or I won't say bust, but Super Bowl are huge, huge disappointment. Uh, everything was predicated on winning the division so they at least got to play the divisional round at home in the right. you know and then obviously the ultimate goal was to be you know the number one seed and so I, I think that you know the general feeling about the Giants going into the 86 season was that the Bears were still the dominant team because they, it was the Bears are probably the best team of the Super Bowl era in my opinion um it's the only team I've ever been around where the other team was actually afraid to go on the field and face them. And I saw that in in the 85 season when they came to Dallas to play the Cowboys. They beat them 44 nothing, And Mike Ditka apologized to Tom Landry, his mentor, after the game. You know, he didn't mean to run up the scores. So the, the, the Cowboys basically didn't want to play that game. Um, but in 86... You know, we thought that Washington was going to be the toughest competition in the division, which they were, and and that the Bears maybe would take a step backwards because Buddy Ryan had left to go to Philadelphia. Um, and the Giants lost the first game of the year in 86 in Dallas. It was Herschel Walker's first game for the Cowboys. He had a 10-yard touchdown run in the final couple minutes um, to win it. And Bill Parcells takes all the fine money he had collected in training camp and gives it to Harry Carson and said, I want you to take the entire team out to dinner. Um, I, I want to make sure that they're still focused, that losing the first game doesn't affect anybody. It's a long season. Uh, and you need to, you know, he used to go to Harry and George Martin and Phil to get his point across. And so... At this point, you know, one game into the season, he wanted to make sure that everybody knew that all the goals were still attainable, that just losing this game ultimately wouldn't really matter. And he was right. 
I mean, they lost one game the rest of the year. Uh, they finished 14 and two, but you know, the entire team, including Lawrence Taylor showed up at that dinner and they players made sure they sat next to each other, sat next to rather uh, a player that they weren't necessarily best buddies with. And it was a real bonding experience. And, and players have told me, you know, that occasional dinner that they would have uh, went a long way to them having each other's backs on the field. But I, I do, just to answer your question, I think they definitely went into the 86 season thinking they were going to wind up in the Super Bowl. Right. Uh, obviously, Bill Parcells was a coach on the head coach. Bill Belichick was there as, right, the defensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. We're talking here earlier in a podcast about coaches not liking each other. You've been around them long enough. When you watch the two Bills thing, I look at them like, man, that is a strange relationship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you think that they were ever at a point where they just despised each other and hated each other, maybe like Wink and Dable do at this point? <laughs> or or have you been around any coaches that have been able to make it work through something like that? Um, yeah, I mean, it, Dick and, and Buddy, I mean, hated each other. See, I'm not around the Giants this year, so you know the Wink-Dable relationship much, much better than me. I, I really just know what I read about it. So, you know, you're you have much better... Uh, intel on that. But I can tell you that uh, when Ditka got the job with the Bears in 82, George Hallis made him keep Buddy Ryan as a defensive coordinator because the the defensive players had written a letter to Hallis saying, I don't care who you hire as head coach, but you better keep Buddy Ryan as defensive coordinator. So Ditka went into Chicago kind of uh, handcuffed in that regard that he never would have kept Buddy Ryan. Right. He just wasn't his kind of guy. And Buddy really thought he was the head coach of the team. So they they hated each other. But like I said, I think that was the best team in the Super Bowl era, so they made it work. Huh. Um, it is a different time. It's a different era. Things are yeah, different. No, it's probably a little harder for that to be the case in today's world. Yeah, I would With think, everything that's around and yeah. some media and all the noise around the, the game. But yeah, uh, yeah. what about Purcells and Belichick? Yeah. Well, you describe that relationship. You you were around it enough over the years. Yeah. Now, Parcells got to know Belichick's dad uh, before he got to know Bill because um, Parcells was at um, Army right. and and Belichick's – Right. He was at Navy, uh, Belichick's dad. And they each used to be the one that was in charge of exchanging the game film. And – to know each other and one day you know uh belichick's dad and I, I can't remember what his first name is i'm not sure it was bill or, or i don't remember but he said you know to parcells you know i'd like you to meet uh, you know my son who one is wants to get into coaching or whatever and so that's how they first met and parcells was about 10 years older than belichick well they wind up as steve a- steve that's his name steve that's right steve. Yeah. thanks for looking that up <laughs> <laughs> Um, so when Parcells Don't tell got my to, secrets, Gary. Don't give away my secrets. Yeah. yeah. So when Parcells got to the Giants, um, Belichick was already on the staff. Uh, Parcells actually, you know, th- this was kind of a precursor to what his he's been like with his career decisions. But Ray Perkins had hired Parcells to be the linebackers coach in 1979. Parcells took the job, actually came to New York, and then left and quit. And got out of coaching for a year because his wife was happy living in the in Colorado, 
and she hated the the life of a coach with all the traveling around. So Bill was out of coaching in 1979. In 1980, he went to New England because he talked his wife into letting him back, be back and do what he was happy with. Parcells was actually a real estate agent in 1980 and hated it, as you can imagine he would. What a different world. Yeah, of course. Um, so in 81, Perkins called Parcells and said, well, now that you're back in coaching, come be my defensive coordinator. And so he took that job, and his desk was very close to Belichick's. And he was immediately impressed by him and was asking Perkins, you know, more and more if, you know, if he can use Belichick to help him with the defense. Belichick was mainly working on with special teams. And so they they actually developed a really good working relationship that once um, Parcells became the head coach in 83, I can't remember if it was 83 or 84, he actually you know, brought him full-time onto the defense and then eventually made him the coordinator. The funny part about that, uh, Jordan, is that when Parcells made Belichick the defensive coordinator, players like Taylor and, and Carson went to Parcells and go, what are you doing? This guy never played football. He never played in the NFL. You know, he, you know, with the, he used to wear the shorts with the sneakers with those socks and cut off sleeves. He looked like he'd just come off the beach. If you can imagine that, it, re it really did look like Belichick had just come off the beach onto the football field um, when he was coaching. So a lot of players were very upset with Parcells because, you know, they had played for him as a defensive coordinator and they knew how good he was. And now he was kind of shifting that responsibility to Belichick. And there was a lot of pushback on that. And then when they realized that Belichick knew what he was doing, he was amazing making adjustments. He didn't wait till halftime to do it. I'm sure you and, and the listeners have seen the video of Belichick leaning, kneeling down in front of the defensive players on the bench with the chalkboard, and he'd write upside down, you know, so they would see it right side up. But he was so good at, at you know, doing the X's and O's upside down and making these adjustments right away. They go, wait a minute, this guy is going to help us win. And if we win, we're going to make more money. We love this guy, you know? <laughs> Right. Anybody that can help these guys make money, they love. And so I think it was a really good working relationship between Parcells and Belichick. Although some point it got rocky though. Later yeah, on, it, at least. It, Probably it maybe maybe I mean you've heard things about when he uh when Belichick kind of left the, the Jets hanging. How that, that, yeah, that, that didn't sit well with Parcells. I mean Bill kind of did the same thing. I yeah, guess. well yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I think it was actually before that. It was on the plane ride home from after they won the Super Bowl in 86, the, the Giants had to enlist the help of Pete Rozelle to prevent ourselves from going to the Falcons. I mean, he was ready on the plane ride home to leave because he was going to get more responsibility and money. Uh, and Rozelle stepped in and said, sorry, you know, you have a contract and this is a lateral move. You're not going anywhere. And so he stuck around. But, but I think Belichick, towards that period of time, felt that, uh, Parcells was kind of messing with all the coaches with his indecision. Belichick himself, after the 83 season, had been offered the, the Vikings linebacker coaching job. And the Giants were coming off a 3-12 in one year. And, and Parcells, I won't say he'd encourage Belichick to take the job, but he said, you know, I want you to think about your family. You know, we're in a win or get fired situation here. And if you have a stable situation in Minnesota, I wouldn't want you to turn it down. 
And Belichick was going to do it, and then he just changed his mind and stuck around with Parcells. The f- interesting thing is Les Steckel was the coach in Minnesota who had offered Belichick that job, but he wound up getting fired after a year. And so it turns out Belichick took the much more stable situation uh, by staying in New York with Parcells. And, um, you know, they had tremendous success. Yeah, they, they, they did all right for themselves, I guess. They, they, yeah, they, yeah, they and then, right. then Par- when Belichick... Yeah, when when Belichick got fired by the Browns after the '85 uh, season, when they were moving to um, uh, to Baltimore, and Art Modell felt there was such negative vibes around Belichick, he didn't want to take him to Baltimore and start off on the wrong foot. Um, he had a choice of going to New England, where Parcells had been for a couple of years, or Jimmy Johnson wanted to hire him in Miami, and Belichick and and. Johnson have become very, very close friends, but Belichick, despite any hard feelings he had about Parcells, you know, elected to go with him to New England, and um, they became, you know, they, they kind of Bill kind of put Parcells kind of put the band back together with all his coaches in New England, and and Belichick was a, a key addition in '96, and and the Patriots went to the Super Bowl that year. Gary, let's finish on this, right? You're uh, uh, one of the New York Hall of Fame voters, correct? Yep. Is there there's two of you, so? Is it two? Yep. Bob Glauber uh, is the other one, yeah. Okay. Uh, so one of the players that's up this year who you've been uh, presenting the case for, I guess, is that the right way to say it? Yep. Is Tiki Barber, giant former Giants running back, obviously. I go back and forth because I, I when I when I look at Hall of Fame, I try to think, okay, was it, were you one of the best players at your position for an extended period of time? And I went into it when I start thinking about Tiki. Eh, not so sure there were better players out there, right? The Terrell Davises, the uh, I guess he crossed over to what Ladanian Tomlinson, mm-hmm. kind of that era. Uh, also, even the era before that was still hanging around, right? Well, Marshall Falk, Curtis Martin. Yeah, the Martin. Marshall Falk, Curtis Martin. Even he probably crossed over with like the Emmett Smiths of the world for a little bit, right? Sure. I would assume. Uh, so I'm, I'm like, eh, I'm not so sure. But then I think about it. You know what? He probably was one of the best players at his position. But did he do it for long enough? And then you look at right. He played, what, nine years, ten years? Ten years. That's pretty darn long. For some reason, my brain doesn't allow that to sink in that he played 10 years because you think he just left when he probably still had more left. So put me over to the edge. Let me hear hear the case of why uh, Tiki Barber should be a Hall of Famer. Okay. um, Well, first of all, uh, Jim Fossil totally misevaluated um, Tiki and what he was capable of doing the first three or so years. He just really used him as a third down back and a, and a kick return. Um, and then Tiki started fumbling a lot when he did get the chance to play. And although he started putting up big numbers starting around 2000 when the Giants went to the Super Bowl, you know, it was, oh, is Tiki get a fumble again? So when, when Coughlin arrived in 2004, he, he, he changed the way Tiki carried the ball. Super high, right? Really. I, remember, I remember he had it like basically up at his neck almost. Yeah. Um, Tiki's last five years are as good as any running back's five years in NFL history. I mean, he was just amazing. 
Um, he's the only player in history with 10,000 rushing yards, 5,000 receiving yards, and 1,000 return yards. He was getting 2,000 yards from scrimmage, you know, between rushing and receiving just about every every year the last four or five years. Right. That's what you remember being special is his ability to catch yeah. the ball out of the backfield. Yeah. And Jordan, as a running back, he was powerful. He's not a big guy, as you know, but he was really powerful. He was unstoppable his last couple of years. I mean, it was phenomenal. And I covered Dorsett at his peak in Dallas. And and Tiki was every bit as good and as productive as as Dorsett was in, in his best years. Um, the issue is, did he do it? Was he great long enough? And you can use the Terrell Davis comparison. Um, Tiki's five best years blow away Terrell Davis's five best years. Well, that's Davis, the argument. That's right. right. That's got to be the best argument right there. Right. And you know, his last four years, he has twice as many rushing yards as Marshall Falk and a couple other Hall of Famers had in their last four years. Tiki was getting better as he was getting older. Um, he retired at 31. And he had so much more to give. But there were a couple of factors. One is he didn't get along with Coughlin. Two, he really felt physically he was starting to wear down a little bit, although production-wise, the numbers tell a different story. And three, he truly felt he was going to be the new Matt Lauer or the next Matt Lauer on the Today Show. I mean, he had an offer from NBC right out of his playing off his playing career. Yeah, Tiki thought he would be, be Strahan. He, the, the career that Strahan's gone on to have is what Tiki thought he was getting. A hundred percent. That's the best way of saying it. And, you know, I was around those guys every day, pretty much. And I, I can honestly say... I never envisioned Strahan having this kind of career in television. Michael was very moody with us. When he felt like talking and what I would be the times I'd be able to get him one on one and he was in the mood, he was amazing. Just amazing to talk to. Tiki was amazing all the time. And Tiki had his eye on the television prize all along. I Jordan, I worked with him for a couple of years on the Yes Network. We did a weekly football show. He did it while he was playing. He would drive up to Stanford, where Yes has its headquarters, um, has its studios, and he'd drive up on his day off. Sometimes he'd go into the stadium to get a workout in and then be up in, in Connecticut by 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning. It was amazing. I mean, it won't help he, him get in the Hall of Fame now, Gary. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just, no, no, no. I get it. I get it. I see why, his, I see why he retired. That's what yeah, that, that's the point I was trying to make is that he was good on television, and he had a lot of reps while he was still playing. So with an offer sitting there from NBC and thinking, okay, maybe I'll play one more year, and that offer might not be there, I understood why he did it. And Tiki is very um, – as I say to him, you know, Tiki, another 1,500 yards, and if you played on that Super Bowl team in 07 – That's what I was just thinking. You were no – it was no brain. He would be a lock. He would, he would already be in. But he, Jordan, he says something that is – might be realistic, but it's certainly very humble. He said, I don't know if the Giants would have won the Super Bowl in 07 if I stayed, because not being there allowed Eli to really assert himself as a leader. 
that probably would not have happened to the degree it did in 07 if Tiki was still there. Because Tiki was such a, a dominant personality yeah. that he opened a way. He, it was kind of being cast, if I remember this correctly, as you know, Tiki kind of minimizing Eli in a way when, when the two of them were there. Well, yeah. Now, he didn't do that intentionally. Right, but, but he, it is what happened, and that's how it was being portrayed, for sure. Right, and then, I, you know, the funny thing was that when one of the, it might have been the first time Tiki was on Sunday Night Football during the preseason is when he kind of marginalized Eli's leadership capabilities, saying it was, I think he said it was laughable or whatever. And it was the first time, I was at training camp the next day, and Eli was as forceful defending himself and speaking out against Tiki as any issue in his first three years leading up to that point, and his teammates defended him. I think what Tiki would end up saying, and we're getting off the point here a little bit, but what Tiki went up saying about Eli on TV that day went a long way towards that team bonding around Eli and coming to his defense and allowing him to really assert himself that year. Right. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing. But I, I do think, you know, and in the presentation I made uh, in email form to this point, and I'm going to be doing more now that he's made it to the final 25, you know, I compared him to a lot of running backs from his era and really made the point of the one thing he has in common with Jim Brown, and by no means am I comparing him to Jim Brown, but both of them quit in their prime when they were still dominant players. And there is something to be said for a guy walking away on his own terms when he still had a lot more to give rather than becoming a broken down running back, running for 300 yards a year and you know he couldn't stay healthy. There is something to be said for a guy leaving after putting together a 2,000 yard yards from scrimmage season. So for sure. And it's really weird because the first half of his career is not Hall of Fame and the second right. half of his career is Hall of Fame. Right. But, you know, you can say that like, you know, Kurt Warner has that donut in the middle of his career where he's great at the beginning and great at the end and had like five years in the middle. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying it would say make me not, if I were a voter, not want to vote for him. I'm yeah. just saying that that's the one thing that maybe holds him back is that he didn't have that. If he had, you know, a, a thousand yard season tucked in at the beginning, it would, you know, it would probably be easier to vote for him. Yeah, probably right. You know, probably but he still had like six or seven thousand yard seasons out of ten. Yeah, um, so I mean, he was he was a great player. One thing, you know, I was on finish on this. We got thirty seconds. Okay, I told I said I was on FA the other day with Tiki, and I said, you know, you were uh, responsible for a technological change in the NFL. That Tiki was the first guy to look up at the at the video boards when he's out in front of the defense to see who was trailing him. I remember and whether that. he had a put into a second. I game. thought it was to look to make sure he was securing the ball tightly. <laughs> no, he didn't no. have to look at the video board to know that. But he he did use it as a rearview mirror, which I thought was really innovative. Can't do that these days, by the way. The, these these humongous screens are like basically right above their heads. I be able to, they were unless they're unless they're looking straight up, they wouldn't be able to see it. Well, in midlife, they're still in the corners, so you you can. In, is, in but Dallas, these newer ones, the boards are the whole tire like. Basically around the, the yeah around yeah the, the scoreboard in the middle, which is yeah. crazy. Yeah. So Gary, we appreciate it. It was a uh, good reminiscing. Uh, I love to hear these stories. Once a giant uh, by Gary Myers. It's a story about the '86 Giants. 
available where, Gary? Amazon? A- Amazon, uh, on any bookstore. All, you know, original new interviews with Parcells, Belichick, Sims, Taylor, the whole crew. Every, 99.9% of the quotes in that book were self-generated during this interview process. So I'm I'm really proud of that. And um, I, I appreciate you having me on. And happy good, holidays to everybody. Happy holidays. Good gift for the holidays right there, Once a Giant by Gary Myers. Uh, thanks a lot. We'll have you on again. All right. Take care. Thanks. On to the next one. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're already going long here, so let's kind of wrap this up. Thanks to Gary Myers for that interview. Always fun. I'm going to finish up here with a little quick Jordan on the beat. This is where I tell you what it's like to cover the Giants work for ESPN or cover the NFL in general. I'm going to take you back to last Tuesday when I'm out at the Tommy DeVito appearance at Primo Hoagies in Wayne, New Jersey, okay? So Tommy DeVito's doing an appearance. Just made his third start, 2-1. and one. Has played well, undrafted guy, local hero, Don Bosco guy. So Wayne, New Jersey, right around the corner, basically. You figure, oh, you know, good little local story. There'll be some people out there. I'm driving up there. I'm like, what is there going to be, like 50 people? So I'm across the street, and I see the place, Primo Hoagies. Primo's, by the way, which is interesting. I believe it's a Philly business. And you could tell because Hoagies, it's a very Philly thing. Here in New Jersey, we call them uh, heroes or subs, no doubt. So you could tell Primo's hoagies, but they're pretty good hoagies, by the way. We're sandwiches, hug, uh, heroes. Anyway, I see across the street the event. I'm like, ah, what would there be like 50, 60 people there? No, no, no. That line is stretching across the whole front of the strip mall, all the storefronts, around the side of the building, into the back, around the back of the buildings. I mean, I'm going to estimate there were probably 500 to 800 people at this autograph event of this appearance for Dami DeVito. And it was wild, wild. In the, in the hoagie shop, in the sandwich shop, people are asking for their shoes signed. They're taking pictures with Tommy DeVito's parents. Everybody's doing the, you know, the pinch the tie and finger celebration, want to take pictures with him, signing helmets. Signing, uh, there was a Godfather pick two picture with Tommy DeVito's face on it, like all these incredible things going on. It almost reminded me of, like, I don't remember like a craze like that. Honestly, being in an event since Odell Beckham Jr. the day after his catch had an event at Roosevelt Field, the mall in Long Island, 
And he was basically, TMZ was chasing him around. So the fact that Tommy DeVito, in three starts, undrafted rookie who had, you know, minimal success in college. Part of it was injury. Part of it was the team he was on, whatever. But wasn't this, like, overly successful college quarterback. Undrafted guy coming in, having some success. But just the fact that he's he's so jersey, right? I mean, that's Justin Pugh told me that. He's like, dude, Tommy DeVito is, like, everything you think when you come to New Jersey or New York and you think about somebody from New Jersey. And look, I grew up in Jersey. I live in Jersey. I know a thousand Tommy DeVitos. And that's the beauty of this whole thing. His family, they're they're pure. They're natural. Like, that's who they are. And that's why I think I love the story. I think it's a great story. And obviously, a lot of other people like the story, as evidenced by the number of people who came out to that event. And, you know, he's signing Tommy Cutlets. He's signing Tommy Cutlets. And I really like Tommy DeVito, what I've gotten to know from him so far. He has this confidence, a cockiness even, but in a very endearing way, right? Because when you're in the NFL, you have to have some cockiness. You can't think you're some scrub. You got to think you're pretty good. You are good. You're made the NFL. So the whole story is amazing. The living at home thing is so rare, uh, but yet so Jersey. It's so perfect for the Tommy DeVito story. Uh, it's, it's just so far it's been really enjoyable. But that appearance, man, when I went there, I didn't know what to expect. I certainly did not expect that. All right, let's wrap up this episode. As always, like, subscribe, tell your friends. Let's grow this podcast. The inside information, that's the number one thing about this podcast. You're going to get information. You're going to get little tidbits that you're not going to hear any, anywhere else. You know, like when I said earlier that I spoke to somebody who has worked very closely with Wig Martindale and Brian Dable recently, and they tell you, you know, their biggest discrepancy is that the two of them just have a different approach to basically everything they do. Those are the kind of things you get on this podcast, that and more inside information. I'm Jordan Ronan. You're listening to Breaking Big Blue. See you next time. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.